agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, it's great to be back, Trey, and I have to compliment you right up front. You say you're a professor. Now you're a tenured professor, so congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's true. So this week I earned tenure here at Oklahoma Christian. Uh, and that's always an exciting, it's an exciting moment in a career. And most people don't know. I mean, it basically means that now people recognize that I do the things that I do. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> They're supposed to leave you alone a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the next time somebody asks me to join a committee, I'm going I'm to say, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Ken, we've got a lot of uh, uh, show, uh, well, shows. I mean, we got a lot of stories up on deck. This week, of course, we're going to be talking about uh, Frank James and what happened in Brooklyn. We're going to be talking about Finland and Sweden deciding on NATO membership, along with the sinking of a Russian uh, ship. So we'll be talking, obviously, about Russia and the Ukrainian war. We're going to be moving a little bit closer here. We're going to talk about Oklahoma signing the most restrictive uh, legislation on abortion into law and some other states like Kentucky that are following suit. We're going to be chatting about Kennedy versus uh, Brimington, which is uh, a religious exercise for a public school employee. That should be an exciting case to get into. Uh, and then we're going to talk in a different kind of way a little bit about uh, high tax earners and the American tax system, which I'm excited about. Uh, and then if we, if we have some time, we got some uh, various stories uh, thereafter. So, uh, Ken, why don't uh, we just take a brief moment and then we're going to start with the uh, Frank's James arrest. So, this week we had some tragic news from New York City. Uh, police arrested Frank James after he allegedly set off a smoke grenade and then opened fire in a Brooklyn subway. Frank had posted videos to YouTube threatening violence. Now, Seven individuals remain in stable condition in the hospital. There's a lot here to unpackage, but there was a couple of bits of story that came out today as uh, uh, Frank James was being arrested. One was he had actually not fled. So he was just going around his normal daily business in New York City when he was found and captured today. I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at the most recent updates on this. So he wasn't even particularly concerned uh, that it appeared that there was any issue. He didn't have any issue being arrested. He was just walking down the street doing his thing. He may have called in one of the tips. Yeah, he may have called in one of the tips against himself even. And also he, after he did the shooting on the subway, the subway, um, he got back on the train and rode at one more stop with all the shooting victims before uh, th then they put everybody off the train at the next stop, including him. But uh, yeah, that is kind of a remarkable aspect of this case. No, I mean, generally you have individuals who are trying to flee or they're a little panicked or they're kind of riled up. And that apparently wasn't the, the, the case in this instance. And, and I, was, I was just kind of curious. Obviously, I don't get into the criminal justice system itself as much, but that struck me not just as really weird, but shockingly re weird. And I was wondering if you had some more insight into the, that kind of behavior. Well, I hadn't thought about that until you asked the question. But one thing it reminds me of a little bit is... Um, he has been convicted of crimes before, although generally low-level misdemeanors that didn't result in any or much jail time. But what you do see frequently, actually, with people who've done significant time in prison um, is that if they get out, 
you know, they, they can't really function on the outside. And many times they purposely commit crimes and try to get caught just so that they can go back to prison. That That's not an uncommon phenomenon. And it, it feels like there's a little bit of a connection to that here, that maybe, you know, it does seem like he's a guy who was kind of at the end of his rope in society. He hadn't worked for more than a year. He had nothing really going for him. And, um, you know, maybe he, he just wanted to, wanted to, you know, either get killed or go to prison. And that might explain uh, the, the behavior um, after, after the crime. That's true, because in that case, why, why do anything unusual? You're not hoping to get away, per se. Right. I mean, it does seem that um, one of the tips that was phoned in when the manhunt was on, and they put his picture on the on media and all that, he seems to have called on himself. And, and you know, from a McDonald's uh, in, the, in the East Village in, in Manhattan— and said, you know, I think I see the guy at, a, at the McDonald's on on First Avenue, <laughs> you know, and it was it seems to have been him that made that call. And when he was picked up, uh, it was only about two blocks from there, from the McDonald's that he had called from, uh, you know, half an hour earlier. Now, you know, the broader trend, and this is something that we're seeing a lot of news outlets talk about, is, you know, we're already having this perception of the increase in crime and that cities are effectively unsafe. Uh, as a matter of fact, a number of the ma- major headlines this week. Uh, today, specifically here on Friday, uh, April the 15th, was, you know, how are we going to bring people back to New York in, the, in these kinds of situations? And so I did a little bit of digging because this, this is closer to my kind of area. So I was taking a look at the FBI's Uniform Crime Data Reporting System. And it is true that we've seen an uptick in violent crimes. Now, to keep in mind, we're going to be talking about 2020. The 2021 data just became available in quarterly format uh, just here over the last month. So the best data we have is is through 2020, although we have a little bit into 2021. Um, So in 2020, at least, we have 400 violent crimes per 100,000 people. And that's approaching levels from 2010. So there's been an upcrease. Uh, now, we're still at historically low crime rates when you pull that time series analysis out much further. Um, so we're nowhere near the 758 per 100,000 in 1991 and 1992. Now, if we come in just a little bit on, uh, in, in, on homicide in 2020, you know, we start to see a bigger increase. As a matter of fact, it starts to look more like the late 90s, not as high as it was in the early 90s, so 91 to 94, but a much bigger jump in 2020. Again, that 2021 available data, some of it's still available. It shows that we're still increasing, but the rate of increase has slowed, which is, which is an open question. Uh, and that that increase, especially in 2021, is in fact most pronounced in cities. So like overall violent crimes, they've increased but not to the previous levels that we've seen. And something else that's been going on, I I know a lot of our listeners in our Discord channel have been asking, well, how do weapons interact with this? So we take a look at Pew's data. Um, We can take a look at weapons and we can see that, again, and we've talked about this, Ken and I, we've talked about this in the show, most weapons uh, deaths have absolutely nothing to do with murder. They have to do with suicide. As a matter of fact, 54% of all weapons-related death is a suicide um, and when you're talking about uh, uh, being murdered, it's only 6.2 people per 100,000 uh, in that category. So it's still an uptick, uh, but it isn't, um, it, it's, it's not, it, it's following that same kind of trend and pattern we see overall. So I'm wondering kind of from your point of view, Ken, you know, for a long time, historically, when I would even teach classes, we talked about how there was this disconnect between the reality of crime 
and people's perceptions of crime, meaning crime was decreasing, 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 but our concern about crime was increasing and increasing and increasing. Uh, and so our policies kind of had a mismatch. What do you think? I mean, the Frank James arrest is just the most recent this year on this subject. And there's obviously some political uh, bias in thinking about crime and crime data. What do you think about this in terms of being uh, any kind of broader trends about political policy and crime? Yeah, I mean, the, the Republicans are, um, you know, going to be beneficiaries of this, I think, politically. And in fact, I think I think they're cynical enough that the Republicans are trying as best they can to pursue policies that will drive up crime rates, specifically because they know they'll be the beneficiaries if, if crime rates go up, um, because they've, they've um, been able to uh, paint the perception that they're um, the anti-crime party. I don't think there's a lot of reality to that. And I think, in fact, the... Um, I, I don't want to interrupt, but I do want to, you, You'd said something there that was provocative to me. So yeah. what do you think are the policies they're making that are increased? You were saying that they are actually yeah, kind of yeah. corrupt enough to be increasing it. So would you, would you talk to that before you move forward? Because I, I, I yeah. think that's interesting. Well, yeah, no, number one is guns. And I think you and I have talked about that before. But the, the, more, the more gun availability there is, the more people are allowed to carry guns around concealed or open or whatever, you know, that you're definitely going to get more crime. And, you know, in, in New York City, where this shooting just happened, you know, it, it was illegal for um, Frank James to be carrying this gun around before he used it to shoot. Now, he didn't get caught. Um, but, you know, after the Supreme Court decides the New York City rifle case in a couple of weeks on, on a partisan a party line vote, as it's sure to do, um, then that won't even be illegal anymore. Right. It'll become perfectly legal for someone like Frank James to carry a gun into the subway like that, which will which will. Eliminate the chance that you know, the police could have prevented it ahead of time, right? I mean, now they didn't prevent it ahead of time, but if they would have stopped him, found that he had a gun, you know, they would have taken the gun and arrested him. Um, and so there's at least some chance of, of intervening and preventing a crime like this. But that, that will be taken away by Republican Supreme Court justices um, advancing their own policy preferences. You know, I was curious about that. And, and, and so when I was doing the Pew research, and this has been an open question. You know, we've, as a matter of fact, you know, I interviewed famously abolished the second, the author of the Abolish the Second Amendment. Uh, and, and by some people's standards, maybe didn't take a hard enough line against him. I think I, maybe I, I, I was too open to his positions. Uh, I know that uh, even Mike thought I needed to be a little stronger. <laughs> um, uh, but so I, I did want to take a look at that because I kind of figured that was one of the places we were going to head. But, you know, the most recent research and when you even just take a look at the raw data from uh, Pew, there doesn't there doesn't appear to be a, a per, really ain't even a good correlation between those kinds of concealed constitutional carry laws and or uh, laxer gun laws and the over amount, overall amount of uh, murder by firearms. As a matter of fact, you see kind of a, a sampling of both kinds of policies in the high and the low categories. So for example, California is in the low cat uh, category, but so is California and, or excuse me, uh, Florida along with California. Whereas New York is higher, even though it has a higher level of gun crime. And then a place like Alabama has a really high rate, even though it has elevated law. So it doesn't seem that they necessarily fit into those boxes. So w w might there be other areas where you think well, the, I, I the Republicans <laughs> are pushing on that? You and I have argued about this before, but I don't think you're reading that data correctly. Um, and let, let me try to give a mathematical example of, of, of why a simple you know, example using simple numbers. So. Let's say there's only 10 murders in, in, in a state 
and, and nine of them are committed with guns and one of them's not, you know, th- then you've got a, a 90% rate of that the murders are committed by guns. Um, now let's say you just give everybody a lot more guns and now there's a hundred murders in the state and 90 of them are committed by guns. Well, th- then you'd still have the same percentage being committed by guns. It would be 90%. But you have an awful lot more murders being committed. And and I would say that it is correct to attribute that that huge increase in the number of murders in, 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 in that hypo um, to the to the massive distribution of guns, you know, even though you might say, well, the percentage of murders that are committed by guns hasn't changed. And and I think that's what the data actually shows is that, you know, you could say, well, the, the percentage of, of crimes that are of, of, of violent crimes that are committed using guns isn't changing. But but the 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 most of those crimes always were being committed by guns. And there's a lot more crimes. So I, I think I would read that data as suggesting that um, that, that the um, increase in guns is the primary driver. Of the increase in violent crime, and it, and I and I, I don't I didn't hear your comparison between Florida and California, but it didn't match my intuition. But can you explain that the, the numbers you were talking about for California and Florida? Yeah, in this case, if, if again, so for listeners, if you want to kind of go and, and and check on this, this is the Pew Research or the Pew Research Foundation's uh, just their data on gun violence, uh, and they're they're looking both at uh, the total percentages, as which is what uh, Ken you're talking about. In this case, it's just the pure number of those incidents uh, in each of those states. So what I'm saying is the number of incidents, according to Pew in 2020 in Florida, is a low number of uh, murders vis-a-vis using a, a deadly weapon in Florida and to California. They actually fall into the same basic category rate, meaning not as a percentage, but as a total number of gun violence. Well, what are the numbers? I'd have to pop the, the actual number would be. Give me just one second on it. I didn't have, I had other things in front of my face. <laughs> yeah. Give me just a moment. Yeah, because that's, I just would like to know that because it did, I mean, you, you could be right about this, but I, I'd like to know what numbers we're talking about before I, before I concede the point. They are both in the less than uh, 10 gun deaths per 100,000 people category. But both Florida and California are less than 10 gun deaths per 100,000 people? Mm-hmm. Okay, well then that yeah, then I I won't contest that then. I, that surprises me, but I I I think that's a meaningful yeah, and I'll number. Have, I'll be yeah. honest, it surprised me as well. So like so for example, the one, some of the three biggest, Wyoming, um Louisiana and Mississippi uh, are greater than 25 per 100,000. And then you have a lot of areas. So like so for example, um you know, DC uh falls in the 20 per 100,000, which is, again, uh, much higher, more uh, comparable uh, to, say, Kentucky than where you have much lower in Indiana, Ohio, West Virginia, and Georgia. Uh, so again, you see, which, so what I had noticed, what I thought was weird, Ken, was is that I couldn't see a pattern between state-level policies, even when I was just uh, looking at it in that sense on a map. And again, if, if anybody wants to head to this, you can go to pre, pre, Pew Research. Uh, dot org, what the data says about gun violence. Um, uh, and you can kind of take a look at their d- uh, gun death rates varied uh, uh, by state in 2020. And that's specifically here where I'm, um, I'm getting that data to be real straightforward. Yeah, well, I, 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 I you know, I certainly am impressed by the, the numbers you just said from Florida and California, and they weren't what I was expecting. But, but one thing that I, that I will offer as a sort of slight rebuttal there is, Remember that we're we're in a couple we're in a recent period where the the both the um, courts and and a lot of the state legislatures have been really unwinding 
gun control legislation. So the, the differences um, in gun policies may not be as different now as they were uh, a decade or two ago. And in, in the particular case of D.C., I mean, D.C. is practically in Virginia, and Virginia has very um, loose gun laws. So, you know, no matter what the gun laws are in D.C., anyone in D.C. can get a can if they want to use the gun to commit a crime. There's, you know, they just have to go across. They could walk over to Virginia, get a gun, and come right back. It's it's that close. So yeah, so, uh, yeah, so Virginia's is between ten and fifteen uh, per hundred thousand. So right, yeah. But I'm saying you could think of DC as an as an urban area in Virginia. So I think oh, you I could, was just meaning it's, yeah, a, it's yeah, weirdly yeah. a little bit lower than DC. Lower, that was a little all. bit lower. But, but yeah, that's but, yeah. But but yeah. that's because I mean I'm sure the 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 urban areas in the um in the in the in the in the easy gun states are going to be the parts of those states that probably have the most the most homicides, I would think. And that's true. I don't have and I didn't look at the, you know, taking a look at the locations, right? So obviously we're comparing DC, which is probably not particularly fair as a sample to larger. So that, that's a fair point, uh, Ken. That's a fair point. Yeah, that, that, you know, you would I would expect if you think of, of DC as basically be governed by Virginia's gun laws, then, you know, I, I would expect that that would be where there'd be more violence than in some other parts of Virginia. But, you know, it, I do. The other policies I was thinking of are sort of poverty's po- po- Republican policies related to anti-poverty measures, Republican policy policies related to mental health treatment. You know, I, th- I think there's there's a lot of um, other areas besides guns, although I do think guns is number one where um, uh Republican legislatures and governors um, have been um, doing things that are very likely to increase violence, and you know, by 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 not providing mental health treatment, by not providing anti-poverty programs, um, things like that, that are you know that are bumping up crime rates. But then I do think that most voters um, are going to fall for that. I think a lot of voters will think, well. Republicans are willing to get tough on crime more than Democrats. And so therefore, if, if crime's going up, you know, that's a political issue that's going to redound to the benefit of Republicans. Do you think part of that, I, I was thinking through that myself, and I was wondering if part of this didn't have to do with, I think in the wake of, and, and as a matter of fact, one we're, we were still getting things on is, you know, in, in the wake of African-Americans uh, coming to the foreground when it came to police violence and the response to that, it appeared to be that Democrats on the whole, not all of them, because there was a lot of criticism of Biden, for example, for not being strong enough on this to say, look, we need to really kind of crack down on crime policies. Do you think that is, is coming back to hurt no less, at least in the messaging front for Democrats, when they had been kind of the the more universal of the idea of like defund the police Uh, and where I'm, you know, I I actually have a lot of sympathy for the, you know, we had talked about this even uh, a couple of summers ago. Now we're we're talking about how we need to think about carefully about institutionalized racism, but it it went beyond that. And so do you think they're owning a little bit of that? I mean, one of the things that, that, that Biden got criticized from on the left was that he wasn't embracing that enough. And now it kind of feels that, that, when you have these kinds of incidences, that feels a little bit more like a millstone for Democrats. Do you think they, that some of that is their own doing in that messaging? Well, I don't think it's their own doing. I think it's the Republicans that are um, effectively messaging. I don't, I don't think the Democrats did anything wrong, but I think they've been outplayed. Uh, because I, I think, you know, for one thing, the 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 overwhelming majority of uh, elected Democratic uh, officials and legislators we're not for defund the police, right? So, so you have 
you know, some some Democrats using that rhetoric, but it was always a, a very small minority. Um, but yet the Republicans were able to um, characterize that in people's minds as the as the position of the Democrats, even though it never was. And then I also think even within the small minority of, of Democrats who are using that rhetoric, um, it was unfortunate rhetoric because it didn't actually reflect the underlying policy ideas that they were actually espousing, right? So that what they were espousing was never um, eliminating police departments, which is the way people hear that, but more about Mm -hmm. um, moving some of the functions into other kinds of agencies that might be better equipped than police to deal with certain kinds of problems. Um, And maybe also having other kinds of civilian accountability um, over police forces. And so so the, the policies, I don't think the policies, even from the, the most progressive Democrats, were truly um, eliminationist in terms of police departments. But that, but the, the slogan made it sound that way. And so I think the Republicans were able to capitalize on that. Yeah, I, I have often thought that the better move there would have been to talk in to maybe demilitarize the police. Yeah. That would have been and I think that would have been a much better both language and, and a more honest representation of what I think at least many positions were. Yeah. So I, I think the Republicans have played all this to their huge political advantage, but I I don't think that Dems have anything to apologize for. I don't think their their actual policy proposals um, that 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 ever you know stood any chance of being uh, adopted even just by Democrats, um, you know, or that represented mainstream Democratic thinking. Um, I, I don't think they were wrong in any of those policy proposals, and I don't think any of those policy proposals, if implemented, would lead to increases in crime. Yeah, I mean, I think we might have a shade of difference there. I think in some of the cities where we had Democratic mayors, uh, when you take a look, and again, there's not enough data. And I was looking at this, and so, I, you know, unlike where with uh, the firearms, you know, I can point, you know, the data is just still too new to say we're going to need a couple of years. But there's at least some preliminary evidence to say that the the lowering of police budgets across the board, which again I don't see as be de, as, as being demilitarizing them, which was which should have been the intent, may have have led to some of these increases. So that will be interesting to take on. So I, I hear that. So I, where, I think long term you... there might be some they're going to have to. Um, but again, I, I'm not willing to put anything out there. Just not enough data yet. Where do you think they reduced police budgets? I don't. I didn't know that happened anywhere. Wisconsin, for example, would be one where it came down. In 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 Milwaukee and Madison and cities like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And did they did they um so so tell me more about that because I I had never heard about that happening anywhere. So what? How much did they reduce it, and in what ways did they reduce it? So the total now again now that one I have to pop back up. Uh, but the total budget I believe was decreased by somewhere in the fifth. One second, I have that here, Ken. I'm seeing here 120 police officers in the city of Milwaukee. So apparently, okay, it went down and then most recently came back up. So uh, it had, it, it is now back to its, according to the uh, start, it would be back to where it was prior to the defund. So that would have been how much of a decrease in an increase? Uh, it says in the article I'm looking at, so they put the it AP, back to 1.6 billion, it looks like. So they're back to 1.6 billion. Yeah, and back which, to about 1,800 officers. And it looks like they talked mm-hmm. about cutting talked about cutting uh, 120, but never did cut more than 60 from the 1800. Yeah. And and I don't know what it the looks population like they, they would have cut. So I guess that would have been what I'm doing some quick math. I think that had been a 24, 25 percent decrease, but it didn't last, obviously, because it's down back this year. Well, in the number of officers, it wouldn't be that it'd be about a two or three percent decrease. No. Yeah. For the officers, you're absolutely right. I was I, I, 
I had been focusing on the budget at the same moment. So obviously yeah. those cuts came from places that weren't just officers on the on the street. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, mean, I, so I, I had seen that uh, decrease. I had not seen that. So a 27 million increase from that point for 2020. So then they're looking to do it about, about another 27 million this 21. Yeah. So you probably wouldn't then. So I'm, I'm going to have to pull that statement back just a little bit because obviously, you know, if you, if you do it as an outlier year, you can't call that being a, uh, a, a long term, <laughs> you know, right. we're not going to have any good data on what that's going to do one way or the other. So, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and for listeners, sometimes that is one of the hard things about being a social scientist, right? In, in an ideal social science world, meaning if I could get at it, it would be amazing to be able to say, okay, here, this city, we're going we're gonna to put the institutional structures in this way and just let it go for 10 years. And then we're going to let this one go one way for 10 years. We'll compare the differences, you know, right. uh, but we don't get to do that, of course, because that'd be unethical, right? Like, I mean, make that clear. Uh, but it, it results in us having to kind of, to the best we can, try to have naturalized experiments. And sometimes like this, you think, oh, okay, I'm going to start to have a naturalized experiment and then things change and, and you don't really get the kind of outcome data that you were and when I say hoping for, I don't mean that in a normative sense, but just to, so that we can have some empirical answers. Yeah, I mean, we could do things like time series. And, you know, I, I think um, if you look at, um, we could compare, I mean, a lot of things have changed, say, since the 1950s, but you could compare um, uh, crime rates in the 50s with um, po police police department budgets or number of officers in the 50s, yeah. you know, with the present. And uh, my guess would be that the the budgets have gone up a lot since then, even while the crime rates have kind of fluctuated a lot up, up and down up and down well in crime rate actually just to be clear i mean although it has been ticking up just so we understand that it's, the, it's, the, the it's, global, it's gone down yeah, yeah. yeah i mean i mean when you take a look 80s and 90s until now it was almost uniformly without exception down until you get to 2010 and then the increase is very very i mean you would almost call it again as i've looked at it it's really, it's within the margin. In other words, it's not really an uptick. And then as you get later into the teens, that's when you start to see a significant increase uh, in, in those kinds of crimes. So, you know, most recently starting kind of in, in 2019, 2020, 2021. Right, right. And the pandemic has a lot to do with that too, because people, every place is less crowded, streets are more desolate, you know, and so people aren't riding mass transit as much. So I think there's more kind of opportunities for crime as well as more people who are kind of at loggerheads during the pandemic and, and uh, might might end up committing crimes that they wouldn't have committed in better times. So uh, yeah, I, I feel like it's very hard to, to evaluate exactly what's going on other than the politics of it, which I think it's easy to see there what's going on. Well, I, and, and again, I, I don't think on the politics side, and, then, and we should probably move on to our next uh, more policy is to say, you know, in the midterm elections, you're always looking at an uphill battle if you're a Democrat. But I think that the structural wins, in addition, excuse me, in addition to the structural trends, that the particularistics of this midterm is not voting well if you've got a D behind your name. <laughs> well, you're assuming competitive elections. I, I think there's so few competitive elections that things like issues won't really play into it very much in very many places. Well, I mean, again, it's true. It's structural conditions uh, explain most of that variation, but there is some space there for, yeah. uh, for issue. But so we should probably pause on that. Uh, and then as we come back, we're going to take a look at our, our home states, uh, Ken, Oklahoma and Kentucky and abortion legisla legislation. Okay, so Ken, this week, Oklahoma, and then joined by Kentucky, joins a host of states in passing more restrictive abortion legislation. 
Oklahoma is set, if it goes into effect here in August 2022, to have the most restrictive set of laws in the country. Governor Stitt signed the signed the bill saying, quote, we want Oklahoma to be the most pro-life state in the country, and we want to outlaw abortion in the state of Oklahoma, end quote. Now, unlike in Texas, the Oklahoman model criminalizes abortions by making it a felony for doctors to perform them, facing up to uh, 10 years in jail and a fine of up to $100,000. The White House press secretary released a statement on this saying, quote, Today, the country's most restrictive legislation uh, regulating access to reproductive health care was signed into law in Oklahoma. This law makes providing an abortion illegal in the state of Oklahoma, with only a narrow exception for medical emergencies and no exception for rape or incest. This unconstitutional attack on women's rights is just the latest and one of the most extreme state uh, laws signed into law to date. Protecting the right recognized in Roe v. Wade continues to be a priority of the Biden-Harris administration, and we call on Congress to pass the Women's Health Protection Act and shut down these attacks and codify this long-recognized constitutional right. Make no mistake, the actions today in Oklahoma are part of a disturbing national trend attacking women's rights, and the Biden administration will continue to stand with women in Oklahoma. The state attorney general from Oklahoma, John O'Connor, says that he is confident that the law will stand up in courts, but says that he thinks that it really hinges on the Mississippi case that, Ken, you and I have been talking about in the past at the federal level. That's going to be, as he puts it, the linchpin. In his words, quote, the state should have the right to make the decision, and that's what we are hoping the U.S. Supreme Court does. Return this decision to the people in the states, end quote, said John O'Connor. Again, state attorney general. So, Ken, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time on the show talking about the Oklahoma model, about some of the responses from Democrats to, excuse me, the Texas model and some of the of Democrats' responses, how we might use that kind of private litigation to effectively outlaw a, a host of matters. But in this case now, that's not even the question anymore. We're actually just having an outright question about privacy, and inside of that, the ability of, uh, of abortion in, in healthcare for women. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the Kentucky law is similar to the Oklahoma law um, in, in Governor Bashir's uh, veto statement before he was overruled by the, by the, the veto was overridden. Um, Bashir noted that Kentucky House Bill 3 contains no exceptions or uh, exclusions for, for pregnancies caused by rape or incest under House Bill 3. A 12-year-old child that's raped and impregnated by her father would not have the option of a procedure without both the consent of her mother and without also notifying her rapist, her father, at least 48 hours prior to obtaining a procedure or by petitioning a a court for a hearing. Um, So these bills are starting to go very, very far. And I think what the, um, you know, just besides just the politics of it, which is that the the, leg- the Republican legislatures that are passing these bills that think that it's good politics for them. You know, I think in, in terms of a legal strategy, they're, they're thinking either um, that the, the Mississippi case, which has already been argued, will overrule, overrule Roe and Casey, um, in which case these laws will be um, constitutional, um, or else um, perhaps the Mississippi case will stop short of that, um, uh, perhaps by doing something like just moving the 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 viability line, relaxing the viability line rule that's part of current uh, abortion doctrine. Um, 
But but if 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 the Mississippi case moves incrementally towards uh, partially overruling or relaxing Roe without fully overruling it, um, then these laws are just setting up the next case, you know, to keep pushing that ball forward. So I, I you know I'm not surprised that we're seeing it. I think it's a it's a I think it's a terrible development for for women and and for the for civil rights and for the country. But um, you know I think we'll we'll see more of it. You know, this is always a difficult one for me because I don't fall neatly into a box, but it is hard for me to get on board in any kind of uh, mode with the Kentucky and the Oklahoma, really the, the, the no exceptions. Um, and again, as you'd pointed out, Kentucky and Oklahoma ha- have this in both cases. Now, in Kentucky, there's at least, as you were noting, it's sort of kind of possible to have some carve-outs. In the case of Oklahoma, there are absolutely no carve-outs um, for rape or incest, meaning there, there is, with notification otherwise, the, the providing of that um, uh, service would in fact be illegal. And, and the healthcare yeah. provider who, uh, who worked with that uh, 12-year-old girl would potentially be liable. There, there is no carve-out. And and that's a I you know that's a particularly difficult space. But you know when I was taking a look at the the, the poll numbers on this, both inside of states and, and outside, the, the the number of individuals who are in that kind of the the broad pro uh, pro uh, choice camp has decreased, uh, and and that I think is a telling data statistic. But I wouldn't have suggested they go. So you know, as you're kind of setting up the, hey, it's the next case, and I agree with you, right? So depending on what happens in Mississippi, you're kind of ready for Oklahoma to come up to bat next and kind of that uh, baseball analogy. But I guess I'm still a little surprised, and I'm curious what your thought is, then why not include some of these carve-outs to make it more likely seemingly to win? I mean, I don't know. That, that, it, it just seems, uh, take it away. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I can only speculate, but um, I, I think if, if I think for one thing, I think some of these um, governors and legislatures in different states, perhaps in Oklahoma, feel that there's a political benefit to being seen as going the farthest on this issue, going farther than the other states. It's it's sort of a form of leadership in a way, right? And so I think they want to do that. And then you know, on on on, on the strategy, I don't think it's a hundred percent about. Um, maximizing their chances of winning in court. You know, I think the the um their their political interests and their their substantive interests may not be identical, right? So, you know, if they're seen as being on the vanguard of fighting for the strongest pro-life position, um that may politically be a sweet spot whether they win or lose the cases, right? Whereas um, you know, if they want to win the cases, they might want to move more incrementally, but if they want to be seen as um the vanguard or the leaders of, 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 the, of the contemporary pro-life movement in the country, um, winning the cases just may not be as important. And I don't really see it was, uh, it's, this is of course anecdotal. And so, the, you know, uh, earlier I've been talking about data, uh, but this year we were covering and talking about civil liberties in my class, uh, my introduction to American uh, politics class. And they, uh, it, it was maybe kind of telling to me in the past, the discussion of civil liberties and getting to privacy was not particularly combative as much. Um, and, and this year, 
I, I hadn't really allotted much time. It was really just kind of an end note and we were going to move on for, to other things. Um, and it ended up being something, as a matter of fact, today I spent a whole day just on that, given the amount of interest uh, from students, because I almost felt like, man, we, we can't leave it that way. And it's difficult because everybody was having a particularly positive, it, it, I don't, I don't want to make it sound, you know, people were having positive, good academic conversations about policy, uh, you know, learning about that law front. But as I was hearing this, what it, I guess what was kind of flowing through my mind was, is I don't really see there being a lot of space, unlike in other policy issues, where you're going to find we're going to find solutions in the sense where you can have compromise, right? Like, I, I'm not sure what that space is. And that worries me a little bit in, in, in pragmatic terms, because generally it's in those spaces that we find the way where everybody's not particularly happy, but we move forward. But there isn't really one of those spaces when you're talking about abortion, given, given the models and the ways that, that individuals sign on to it. And I, I don't know what you do with this, right? I mean, you're, today you either have a pro-life or a pro-choice judge, and, and, and there's not really much to say in between because there, there doesn't seem to be any – people can talk about it on both sides, but there's no ethical ground that anybody can seemingly get into that would push you to a, a compromise, I guess, would be the best way of putting it. Well, I mean, there, there may be some judges who, um, although they may have a position on, on abortion, they may be pro-life or pro-choice, um, they may have other values that they think are more important than that. Um, so I would probably use Chief Justice Roberts as an example here. You know, I, I think if you're, you know, not that there's a lot of people like him out there in the courts, but I think Chief Justice Roberts is pro-life and, and not pro-choice. But I think he probably has even more of a commitment to the concept that the um, court should not be seen as just another political institution um, because that will harm its its long term um, legitimacy and and even its 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 power ultimately. And so I think Roberts's preference would be um, to decide cases slowly and incrementally, moving moving the ball in a pro life direction, but not. Um, not all at once the way these Oklahoma or Kentucky laws are doing it um, that would that would just seem very political to substantially everybody um, and that would harm the court that way. And so um, so I think there's those kind of differences in in their um, jurisprudence. And there may be you know, we have seen some cases already um, in the past five years um, where Roberts, who is, uh, I think, pro generally pro-life, has voted sometimes to strike down. Um, certain um, restrictions um, on abortion that were just moving too far too fast for his kind of jurisprudence. You know, even though I think he would have been willing to sustain some of the same restrictions that he voted to strike down um, if, if we'd gotten there as fourth or fifth in a line of cases rather than just first in a line of cases. Um, and so there's, there's that uh, mediating factor, I guess. But um, yeah, I think that's becoming uh, a rare kind of thing in, in the judiciary. And uh, I think, you know, probably you know, upwards of 90% of federal judges are going to vote in these cases just fundamentally based on whether the judge themselves is, is pro-life or pro-choice. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know really know besides, I mean, the best path potentially forward would be for Congress, as I think the White House urging, but obviously recognizing is not going to happen, 
it, to, you know, to set kind of some standards out for that. But again, there's not a lot of political win to, to do that. There's no, yeah, I mean, it also, doesn't help anybody's reelection chance. Well, right. And, and especially, I mean, it might help some people's reelection chances to take a position on it, but ultimately the, the Congress is too dysfunctional right now to pass legislation. But even if they did, I don't actually think that would um, solve the problem because there would be constitutional attacks on congressional legislation as well. Um, related to things like Congress's enumerated powers and and doctrines that relate to federalism. And so I I tend to think, you know, again, I'd leave Roberts to one side, but I tend to think if you look at the other four Republican justices on the court today, um, if Congress passed a law protecting uh, the right to um, abortion, and and if Congress sought to rely on both its its power to regulate interstate commerce um, or its power to uh, enforce uh, the, the the civil rights provisions of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, you know, I, I still think that four four of the Republican justices on the court would just say, "Well, Congress doesn't have that power, and that's unconstitutional." So I, I think I think you don't necessarily the idea that we could just look to Congress to solve this and then take the courts out of it. I, I think we're too far down the road of the courts deciding everything for that really to be realistic. And that's an excellent question and a point. The um, David Mayhew, uh, kind of a famous early and still important political scientist who studies Congress, you know, what you were saying was, well, there, there might be the will to take a stand. And one of his models effectively said this is that for congresspersons, taking a, a position taking is far more important than legislating because the position taking is what nets you votes but also costs you the least in the long run, right? So that's why even at low levels where it doesn't matter, you know, so for example, here in Oklahoma, we had some of our uh, school board members running on their position on the Second Amendment as if that mattered any, right? Like it it was just pure blatant position taking. Uh, And of course, in his case, he was talking about in the point of Congress. But once you end up legislating on it, you know, then it becomes more difficult and fraught because now you're, you're, you're dealing with the actual votes themselves. Um, and I've often, I often think about Mayhew when I think about those kinds of issues. But you might be right that even if Congress had some institutional change and we could have more legislation come through, that it may or may not fix issues once they've already kind of been out of the bag so far. Um, because we do. I mean, today the, the court is, is de facto the, the arbiter of meaning of the Constitution, yeah, and it'll be it'll be a, a heads I win, tails you lose situation. If if states vote to um, restrict abortion, the pro life judges are going to say, well, that's states' issue, so they can do that. And, and if Congress votes to protect abortion, um, they're going to say, well, that's that's a you know, that's a federalism issue, so they can't do that. But but I think you know the the, the pro the pro choice justices would see both of those questions exactly the opposite. So ultimately, even though there's aspects of federalism questions rolled in here, uh, I don't think any justice on the court other than possibly Chief Justice Roberts would take those federalism questions even the slightest bit seriously. Well, Kent, I think we're going to need to pause here to end our ad-supported preview. So I want want to thank you for your listeners and you're listening to this. Uh, Thank you for listening to the ad-supported preview. And know that we have a lot more coming, right? We're going to be talking uh, about Finland and Sweden, what's happening with NATO uh, uh, membership. We're going to be talking about the sinking of a Russian ship. Um, uh, we're going to be chatting some more about religious exercise and upcoming court case. We're going to be talking about America's taxes and more. So we've got a lot of 
uh, uh, stories yet to come. So if you are already a member, then that means you're ready to get those things. If you're a supporter, you're going to see that in our supporters channel and you're going to have access to those right off the bat. But maybe you're not, in which case you can become a supporter. So Patreon supporters will get the entire episode, which runs about two hours every week. So if you want to get the rest of the episode, all you have to do is head to patreon.com slash politics guys. That's patreon.com slash politics guys. You can also become a supporter through PayPal by going to politicsguys.com slash support or through Venmo where we're at politics guys. Finally, if you would like that full version, but for some reason you are not financially in the position to support it. I mean, these are crazy. Please email Mike at politicsguys.com and he'll be happy to get you set up with full access. I hope you'll join us on the rest of this show.